Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. All right, I'm going to keep it simple on this intro today. Topic on the Global Medical Device Podcast, significant risk versus non-significant risk and what that means to your clinical investigation and your medical device design and development efforts. If that's important to you, then you're going to enjoy this conversation that I have with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, John Spear, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Guru. Joining me this morning on the podcast is Mike Drews. Mike Drews, you're probably a familiar guest if you've listened to any of the podcasts before. And based on some of the wonderful metrics that we've been collecting, uh, there's a good chance you've listened to many of these episodes before. So Mike is with Vascular Sciences. You'll recognize his voice and his contributions to the industry. Just do a quick search. For his his name, D-R-U-E-S, and you'll find some wonderful content. I know last time Mike and I spoke, we talked about his bucket methodology for risk management. It's a wonderful article. Definitely encourage you to check that out. But Mike does consulting with regulatory bodies, FDA, Health Canada. He also works with med device companies. So Mike, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, John. Always a pleasure to be with you and your audience, and, and thanks for continuing to have me back. Yeah, I... This is, uh, I always mark these times on our calendar. This is uh, an enjoyable point in the week when you and I get to chat. So uh, I, I look forward to these as well. I do too. Thanks, John. All right. Well, today we're going to dive into a topic that certainly many medical device companies are very interested in. I mean, there's always this quest for getting real clinical data on a medical device. Obviously, that's that clinical data, that real life experience seems to have more meaning in the, the grand context of a product versus just that benchtop testing that, that uh, sometimes gets conducted. And so today we're going to jump into this, this topic of non-significant risk versus significant risk. We're going to talk about the implication from an IDE perspective. We'll talk about all the acronyms that go along with that. And we'll, we'll dive into some other aspects of what do you need to do from a design control standpoint. Sound okay, Mike? That sounds great. All right, Mike. So there is this context uh, that's out there, SR versus NSR, significant risk versus non-significant risk. So if you could take a moment or two and, and get us all calibrated a bit on what's the difference. I'd be happy to, John. So as you and your audience know, there's a number of ways that we can sort of separate or classify, if you will, medical devices. One is via the classification system, class one, class two, class three, which is at least theoretically based on risk. Although, as we talked about in our last podcast, risk has many different kind of connotations, and there's a lot of exceptions to that. But the classification system is one way. A second way is differentiating devices in terms of significant risk, SR, versus non-significant risk, NSR devices. 
interestingly enough, the definition of risk in the context of SR versus NSR is not very well defined, as we discussed in that risk podcast. And I would point your audience, if they have not listened to it, to listen to that podcast before making a determination of significant risk versus non-significant risk. But as we'll get into in this, in this particular discussion, the ramifications of that decision are very important in terms of what you have to do and who you have to notify during this process and so on. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of go back on that a little bit, there's you describe one of your your buckets, if you will, and I'm using air quotes for those of you who can't see at home, but one of the buckets has to do from a clinical perspective and from the end user perspective. That's correct. I can, at a very, very high level, recap those three buckets. The first bucket is the probability of direct harm the probability of direct harm, and that's the most obvious connotation of risk that people think of. That's the the type of risk that we think about in the design controls, for example, and that is what is the probability that your medical device causes harm directly to the patient. Usually it's the patient, occasionally it's the caregiver. The second bucket is the probability of harm of not using. This is a PMA requirement. It is not a 510K or de novo requirement yet, although there is some discussion of putting it in there. So if we don't use our device, what other options do we have? Not just other device options, but maybe there are surgical procedures, maybe there are medications that we can use instead. And the third bucket is the probability of providing the wrong information, the probability of providing harm because of the wrong information. This is endemic in all diagnostic products, including telemetry like EKG monitors, including imaging systems, including in vitro diagnostics like uh, cancer uh, detection, including many of the mobile medical apps and so on and so on. So as I mentioned a moment ago, with regard to SR versus NSR, when you look at the, the, the guidances that have come out over the years in this area, the type of risk is not specific in making that determination. But you know, my standard advice is consider all three of those buckets when you're making an SR versus NSR determination. Yeah. So I guess one way to, to sum that up is when you, you as med device company are evaluating significant risk versus non-significant risk, be sure to document those decisions. And, you know, I guess that's the next question that, that comes to mind for me is, is who gets to determine significant risk versus non-significant risk? I mean, and, I'll, and let me preface this by saying I talk to a lot of medical device companies, as do you, and just about every medical device company I talk to, regardless of what they're designing and developing, believe that they can do a clinical investigation and call it non-significant risk. Who gets to determine that? And as we'll talk about, John, I think the primary reason is because they want to avoid doing an IDE and they want to avoid dealing with the FDA as much as possible, which on a personal note, I think is very unfortunate. I don't think that an IDE or for the more importantly, the FDA is something that we should, our goal should not be to avoid them. Rather, our goal should be to work together with them. But as we've talked about many times, my caveat and that is tell, don't ask, lead, don't follow. Right. But the answer to the question, John, of, of who decides whether the device is significant risk versus non-significant risk, ironic as it might sound, it's not the FDA, it's not the IRB or the Institutional Review Board, it's us, the manufacturer. 
to a certain extent, that is like putting the fox in charge of the hen house. But that, <laughs> is, but, but that is exactly what the regulation says. And by the way, one of the reasons why it's important, if I can take this a, a half a step further, I think the, the re, one of the reasons why a lot of companies will try to spin their device as a non-significant risk device is so that they don't have to involve the FDA, at least not early on, and they don't have to do a, an IDE, an investigational device exemption, because a non-significant risk device is IDE exempt. But let me say this much. In the NSR devices that I have worked on, and I've worked on a number of them over the years, I still strongly, strongly recommend taking it to the FDA in advance prophylactically, as I like to say, as a matter of professional courtesy, before you begin your clinical trial, not to ask them their permission, not to say, is this okay? Because if your device truly is NSR, you do not need their their permission. But rather, I want to keep them in the loop and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page because I've seen it happen, as I'm sure you probably have as well, John, where companies will assume their device is NSR. They will do their clinical trial. Afterwards, they will, in the submission, send that data to the FDA, only to find FDA comes back and says, well, we would like, you know, we want to see this piece of information that you did not collect or even or even worse. FDA says, well, gee, we don't see this as non-significant risk. We see this as significant risk. And now you have some real problems. Right. Now that is invalid and do over and all that sort of thing. uh, Exactly. And in extreme cases, and again, this does not happen often, but it does happen occasionally. In extreme cases, when that happens, you might not be dealing with just the FDA. You might be dealing with the Department of Justice as well. So, uh, and those guys don't mess around. Yeah, well, that's they do carry badges, and I'm sure some of them carry guns. But <laughs> anyway, all right. So this determination of SR versus NSR. Okay, so I, as med device company, get to make that decision. I'm guessing that. Well, I know there's a guidance document that that exists to help provide some context and some direction on that. But you know, what else do I? Where else can I go? Or is that guidance document really it? No, it's a good question. There's a few guidances, and we can provide to your audience uh, links to guidances along with the podcast. In addition to that, though, it's always prudent to do your regulatory due diligence, your homework, so to speak. So if you're working in an area where there are already other devices that are similar to yours, that's a very good place to look to see what the what the precedent is. But in many cases, there aren't devices that are exactly the same or even close. And so at the end of the day, it really is our determination. But this is an area, John, and you mentioned this uh, earlier, documentation is very important. You right. need to to go through that analysis. If you want to use my three-bucket approach, terrific. If you want to use a different approach, that's right. fine as well. But you need to use some analysis and you need to document that. And I'm a big fan of using subject matter experts. So you can identify some, some top people from either academic institutions, they might be engineers, they might be clinicians, depending on the device or the technology that you're working on. And what I would suggest in this particular situation, I do not ask SMEs to write letters to say my uh, anything about my device, and I certainly do not want them to say my device is the greatest thing since sliced bread because that's inherently biased. Instead, in this particular context, what I would be asking them is to say, 
um, based on my understanding of the labeling as well as the technology of the device, it makes sense to consider this particular device a non-significant risk device, you know, for the following reasons and so on. And I would put all of that information into your, to use a, a, a phrase from a different podcast, your letter to file. Right. That way, if in the future some co- somebody comes knocking on your door and says, hey, we noticed that you are doing a clinical trial here of this device. We don't remember you ever come and talking to us about it. What the heck is going on? Right. Now you can pull this file out and you make it very obvious that you didn't forget anything. You're not hiding anything. It's just a matter of a business decision that you're not notifying FDA. Right. Uh, and there we go. Well, I mean, and, and let's go back to that point you made a few moments ago. If you determine that that your study that you want to do is not significant risk, you suggest a courtesy of just notifying the FDA. And, and so let's talk a, a bit about that. And we've, we've talked about the topic of a pre-submission before. Is that the vehicle by which you would notify FDA regarding your non-significant risk study? I think most likely nowadays FDA has formalized many of the, the methods of communication with the agency, which to a certain extent, I think is unfortunate in my opinion. Right. I think we've made it too difficult for companies in the FDA to talk to one another. But short answer is yes, I think the pre-sub process is probably the most appropriate method to do this. Whether the company wants to have a pre-sub dedicated just specifically to this SR versus NSR or not, ultimately that's up to them. Sure. Usually that's not the case. Usually what I will do is I will present the regulatory plan, the R&D plan, including the testing matrix, uh-huh. and the clinical trial or the lack thereof, all within the same pre-sub. Okay. Uh, but if you sense. if you have a device where you th- you are truly in the gray area between SR versus NSR, and it could go either way, and you're a little fearful that maybe some of our, our friends on the other side of the table might see it uh, differently than you do. In that particular case, you might decide to have a pre-sub meeting dedicated just to to talking about this particular topic. Right. Right. What, one other thing I think we should mention for your audience, John, is even if your device is a non-significant device, and in that case, let me be crystal clear, there is no obligation, there is no um, sure. regulatory mandate to talk to the FDA. That's just my personal recommendation. Yeah. You still have an obligation to talk to the IRB, the Institute right. Review Board. Yeah, and, and, and I think there are. Uh, that's probably worth spending a moment or two talking a little bit about what an IRB is, and I'm going to make an assumption. We have some listeners that they may be venturing into this for the very first time. Granted, there probably are quite a few who have been down this path many, many times before, but if I want to do a a clinical research on my product or investigation of some sort, it's not as simple as just going down to to the, the major hospital in my city and finding somebody and saying, hey, will you? I got some product. Will you do a study on this? There's a little bit more involved than that. There is, John. In a nutshell, and we could spend a lot of time talking about IRBs, but in a, in, in a nutshell, the Institutional Review Board or IRB is sort of a backup, a safety valve, if you will, to the FDA. The Unlike the FDA, the IRB 
exists at the level of the local institution, the hospital, the medical school, the clinic, wherever you might be doing your particular clinical study. And their most important role is to ensure the safety of the patients participating in the clinical trial at that particular local institution. Right. And they will be looking at a lot of the same information that the FDA will be looking at. But here's the thing, and this is why I think it's important in our conversation today of SR versus NSR. If your device is non-significant risk, and then as we've discussed, there is no obligation to take this to the FDA. Right. If you do not take this to the FDA, the only group that stands between you and the patient is the IRB. Right. So in my opinion, for non-significant risk devices, the role of the IRB becomes even more important. Sure. Than when you're working on a significant risk device. And in that scenario where the FDA is not involved, the IRB, again, in my opinion, has an obligation to look at many of the things that FDA would have looked at anyway, That, but because it's a non-significant risk, yeah. they're not looking at. So even very basic kinds of things like biocompatibility, like usability, and so on and so on, normally those are just tick box on the FDA form. Right. But the FDA is not involved here. So if the IRB is doing their job, and regrettably, they don't always do their job, but if they're doing their job, they should be looking at the same information. So bottom line, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, John, that a number of your customers, and, and unfortunately mine as well, will sometimes try to work on an NSR device to avoid the FDA. But the amount of work that the company has to provide, whether it's the FDA or IRB, should be for the most part the same. Yeah. You know, testing and right. so it's not, a, it's not a shortcut in that regard. Right. And I, and I think that, like you said, sometimes people, well, or I'm speculating, sometimes companies think, oh, I can go the NSR route because it's going to be simpler and easier and faster and all those sort of things. And, you know, generally speaking, there's still, like you said, there's still some obligations and some IRBs are better than others. Let's, let's face it. But even if the IRB is doing their job or whether or not they're looking at the details to demonstrate the product, it is our responsibility as medical device professionals to be able to present that case. We talked about documenting the risk rationale and the analysis of whether or not the item is significant versus non-significant risk, as well as harm to patient and, and clinician and, and all of those different aspects of how the product is to be used. That all needs to be captured. But we also need to be able to show uh, objectively that the product is actually safe for clinical investigation. You mentioned biocompatibility as, as one component, you know, and, and for many devices, that certainly is a factor. In other cases, electronic devices, for example, electrical safety may come to bear. We may need to, to have some bench testing and animal testing before we even go to the clinical uh, setting. So there's a lot of factors that we have to weigh in to get to that point where we're ready to do that, that clinical investigation. Absolutely correct, John. I could not agree more. And just one thing I would like to amplify, because the, I, I, I think there is some misunderstanding in the industry about this. You alluded to speed to market a moment ago. Right. And some folks think that if you can avoid the FDA and avoid doing an IDE, you'll get through this process faster. Well, that's not necessarily the case. And here's why. Because although you might think, I don't mean you, John, but I mean uh, folks in the industry might think that it's a slow process getting through the 
FDA, which it certainly can be sometimes. At least there are some, because of MEDUFA, the medical device user fee amendments and so on, at least there are some requirements to, to keep the ball rolling. Right. Unfortunately, in the IRB world, there are no similar requirements. Right. And it can happen. Now, I'm assuming that we're talking about an institutional IRB as opposed to a commercial IRB. Commercial IRBs are a little bit different, but right. that's beyond the scope of, of our discussion here. It can be pretty time-consuming to get through the IRB process. Um, and in addition to that, at least FDA has or is supposed to have the subject matter expertise in the different areas, biocompatibility, you mentioned electrical safety testing, and so on and so on. Whether an IRB has those experts, it, at least in my experience, that's usually not the case. <laughs> right. Might as well. But the expertise should lie within the medical device company. And, and if you don't have it internal at your company, leverage resources, people like Mike Drews and John Spear, for example, or other testing firms and, and resources who can help you in that regard. But there is a, an expected body of knowledge that you're building in order to get to that clinical Absolutely. So, so, so to wrap up this part of our discussion, I think if the audience just simply remembers that the most important function of the IRB is to ensure the safety of the patients participating in the clinical trial locally at that particular hospital, medical school, what have you, that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. And, you know, keep in mind, folks, that when we talk about device safety and we talk about risk management, we talk about, you know, we didn't really explicitly describe design freeze, but there needs to be some level of, quote, design freeze before you go and start doing clinical investigations as well. You can't build a device and take it to the clinic and do some testing, you know, clinic, gather some data and then go back and iterate and come back, go back and iterate. That's just not the, a practical way to do that. So, and that, that's a good point, John, and maybe this could be the topic of a different discussion, but <laughs> yeah. in, the, uh, in, in the medical device world, because of the iterative nature, the evolutionary nature of our device design, we tend to be a little bit sloppy um, when it comes to design freeze, especially when it gets to the clinical trials. If you compare what we do in devices to what we do in drugs, there is no, no, uh, there, we, you know, there's no, we don't have a snowball's chance and you know where changing a molecule in the, right. or even for that matter, changing a manufacturing process in the middle of a clinical trial. Right. So you have to have things really buttoned up. Um, right. lockdown uh, in drugs and biologics. We don't have that level of rigidity in the medical device world, which is probably a good thing, but right. we need to have some. And right. speaking of that, what, what does your audience need to understand, John, in terms of design controls for in the determination between significant risk versus non-significant risk? Sure. So I always, people always ask, well, what, what can I do with this prototype? And can I do clinical work? And can I do this? And can I do animal studies? And that's really a question I, I always flip back on them is if you're building a device, what do you hope to achieve? What, how many are you building? Are you building three? Are you building 300? What kind of information do you want to learn from this product? And the answer to that is very important because if you're just doing some bench testing, then that's a completely different answer than if you want to go and do clinical investigation. If you're going to go do clinical investigation, in the design control terminology, that, that really fits in that, that topic of design validation. And that design validation is demonstrating that the product that I've developed 
meets those user needs. I design the correct product. That's what I'm trying to demonstrate through that clinical investigation. And so that would imply that you have things like your user needs nailed down. You have your product design input requirements, performance criteria, all of that information would be locked down. You know all the materials and components of that particular product and that's captured and documented. You've done some, we talked about the biocompatibility, electrical safety. You've done other testing and activities to show that the product is safe. That's design verification. And you've had design reviews throughout that process. So all that should be documented. Now, I want you to understand, you may get to that design freeze and you may be building these, these units and your production-like settings for supporting your clinical investigation. It's not to imply that you can't go back and change before you go to market, but you should have a device that is very much a candidate for, for release if you're going to this level of a clinical investigation. Well, once again, John, I could not agree with you more. You did a great job at a high level of ticking through the, the major steps and what we're looking for before beginning a clinical trial. Let me just offer it to the audience in a slightly different way, maybe even at a slightly higher level. All of the details that you just ticked through are very, very important, but I look at it very simply from a, from a philosophical perspective. Even in a clinical trial, would you feel comfortable in the device that you're working on using this in a clinical trial on a family member, on a friend, perhaps even on yourself? And if the answer to that question is yes, I think largely we're good to go. Yeah. If the answer is I'm not sure, then maybe we need a little more work to do. Yeah. Because even in a clinical trial, you know, when there is still a certain degree of risk and so on and so on, at the end of the day, we are still talking about people's lives here. We are. Maybe uh, that might be a, a nice segue to our last question for today. Speaking of, of people in clinical trials, yeah. we both know, John, that there's a growing trend uh, in our industry for people to do clinical trials outside the United States. And certainly, like there are advantages and disadvantages to that, and there's a lot of controversy around that. But any thoughts or experiences or recommendations that you'd like to share with the audience about the issues that we run into in doing clinical, clinical trials outside the U.S.? Yeah, Mike, I think the interesting, and we've, we've kind of hinted at it a couple of times in this conversation already, but I think the interesting twist here is that there's this perception in some cases that I can get clinical experience outside the U.S. faster than I can in the U.S. And, and you know, to go kind of that next level deeper, there's this perception that if I go the path of a significant risk study in the U.S., that's going to require that I do an investigational device exemption or IDE, and I'm going to have to submit a packet to FDA, and I'm going to have to more or less get FDA's blessing before I do this clinical investigation. So in other parts of the world, the regulatory nature may be not as stringent. I might be able to just build some prototypes on my bench and you know, do some basic safety testing, and I can go to sub-Saharan Africa or you know who knows, other parts of the world where there are less regulatory hurdles and I can get that clinical investigation faster because that's what I'm after. I'm trying to get demonstrate this product works. And uh, you know, your point that you just made a moment ago about 
Hey, if I make this product and I use this on, on a family member or a loved one or myself, would I be comfortable with that? And I think this is an important question. It doesn't matter who in the world is the recipient of my product. I still need to be answering that same question with confidence. But interestingly, I think a lot of med device companies are going outside the U.S. for these studies because there's the perception that it's faster, that it's easier, that they can gather data uh, and information that they need about the use of their products in a clinical fashion without having to go through that FDA hurdle. It raises some flags with me sometimes. Well, it certainly can, John. And, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because the last question that we talked about in terms of design controls, I gave a higher level, more sort of a philosophical response. So for this for this last question that we're discussing today about clinical trials outside the U.S., let me get very, very practical, very uh, brass tacks with my response. The fundamental question that it comes down to is, why are we doing this study? In other words, are we planning on giving this information to the FDA or not? There are some situations I've been involved in, I'm sure you have as well, where we have, for example, a dozen or maybe more different potential medical device designs. And we need to whittle down that universe because we can't possibly pursue all of them. So we want some real quick and dirty human testing to determine which of these prototype designs are worth pursuing. In that particular case, that data would never in a million years be reported to FDA or anybody else. We're just using it for our own right. sort of uh, developmental purposes. Let me pause uh, you there for a moment. Even in that scenario, Mike, we would still, every candidate that we would go and pursue, uh, you know, as far as different options, we would still have information to demonstrate that the product's safe. So I just want yes. to... Yes, Yes, thank you for interjecting that, John, because I, I should add, this is not an excuse to be sloppy engineers or take shortcuts. It's certainly not an excuse to treat people as guinea pigs, regardless in where the world they might be living. But I'm just simply acknowledging a reality in this world that, unfortunately, some folks, including both in this industry and as well as at the FDA, don't want to acknowledge that happens or pretends that it doesn't. Right. So. So that's one scenario where we're doing it for our own reasons. We're not going to submit it to FDA or any other regulatory authority. The other reason is where we do want to submit that data to the FDA. And so now let me be now let me get very US focused here. So if a company is planning on doing a clinical trial outside the United States and using that data as part of a US submission, now you need to be very careful. Now you need to make sure that you're dotting all your I's, that you're crossing all your T's, that you're following the good clinical practices or GCPs, that you're using clinical monitors. Because at the end of the day, well, let me say it this way. So historically, FDA has not been keen on taking data, clinical data, for uh, that has been collected from outside the U.S. as part of a U.S. submission. However, that has been changing over the years. And now, more recently, I know of a couple of devices that have been approved here in the United States where 100% of the data has been collected outside the U.S. In other words, there was no U.S. data whatsoever. That's still, to a a certain extent, the exception rather than the rule, but it is a growing trend. 
Right. And so FDA has put out some guidance recently. We can we can provide a link for your audience, specifically looking at collecting clinical data from outside the U.S. But like most guidances, in my opinion, there's really nothing new there. It's all pretty much common sense. You need to work with the FDA in advance. And by the way, going back to the pre-sub, I would also mention in the pre-sub, I would say to the FDA, I would not ask them. I would say to them, oh, by the way, we're doing this particular clinical trial. It's an NSR device, so we do not have to tell you, but we're letting you know anyway. And we're planning on doing it in these particular countries. And here is our protocol. Here is our design, our endpoints, our inclusion, exclusion criteria, and so on and so on. At the end of the day, John, as we've talked about before, we want to work together with the agency. We don't want to treat them as our adversary. I guess a good way to sum that up is going outside the U.S., maybe there may be a good reason to do so, but it's not a substitute for good science. It's not a substitute for avoiding FDA or or following good clinical practices, good design controls, and things of that nature. So, Mike, I know we're just really getting into this topic. You know, it's perhaps it's one of those areas that that we can dive deeper into today or at another time, I guess we're, we're out of time today, but it's great for the, the audience to understand significant risk versus non-significant risk. Yes. We will provide some of the guidance documents that exist on that topic, as well as when you plan to do investigation outside the United States, what that you know, FDA would expect and, and require in those situations. We'll, we'll provide all of that information in the text that accompanies this podcast. But Mike, I want to thank you for once again, diving into deep into the regulatory details of topics that are important to the medical device industry. So thank you for your insights today. Well, thanks, John, as always, for the opportunity to chat with you. I enjoy our conversations as well. And to help your audience, both John and I have a tremendous amount of experience. I won't add up the numbers between us, <laughs> but, but we've both been playing this game for a very long time. And I'm sure that if your audience members contact either one of us, we would be more than happy to help. Absolutely. And Mike Drews, ladies and gentlemen, you can find him. Just do a quick search, D-R-U-E-S. You'll find him on LinkedIn, as well as another number of other publications in the med device industry, some wonderful content. Be sure to check that out. And as we talked about today during this uh, non-significant risk, significant risk conversation, there's still an importance of demonstrating your product is safe before you get to that clinical stage. We talked about risk management and how important that is to making some key decisions. Folks, check out greenlight.guru. We have a software platform with workflows that are designed to help make design control and risk management practices as easy as possible. Just go to greenlight.guru, request more information, learn more about the product and see if that might be a fit for what you're doing. So once again, this has been John Spear, the founder and VP of quality and regulatory at greenlight.guru. And you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.